Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Hey everybody, welcome back to Brass Chats. Today we're sitting down with a gentleman who is a retired third trumpet with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and one of the most sought after trumpet teachers in the country, <laughs> Mr. Jim Pandolfi. Thanks for joining Hi. us. Pleasure to be here. Let's start off with David Krause. We interviewed him a while back, and okay. he calls you the Yoda of the trumpet. <laughs> what types of things did you guys work on together? Why does he say that? Uh, he's, well, when I first met Dave, uh, he wasn't playing very well, and I, I evaluated him in a lesson, and I told him, Dave, if you want to study with me, you have to turn around 180 degrees and go exactly the opposite direction. And... What was he so, doing? Uh, he was breathing down low. He was trying to make a big sound. He was doing everything wrong. And uh, so basically, I got him to change everything. And to his credit, he took it and he made it his own. And he figured out how to do it for himself. And it's, it's just terrific. And Let's get into specifics about that. Uh, you, you mentioned the breathing. Um, this is one of your big things. I mean, uh, talk to me about the breathing. Well, it, it, <coughs> it used to be because, you see, you have to understand that most of the things that I say are designed to fix problems. Mm -hmm. Because when people come to see me, they have problems playing or else they wouldn't be here. Right. Because I generally ask my guys, why are you here? Mm -hmm. And last trumpet lesson I had, I was 20 years old. That's a fact. And when uh -huh. I did have trumpet lessons, no one told me how to play the trumpet. I figured this out on my own. I mean, yeah. uh, when I was a youngster, my dad was a trumpet player, and I had his sound in my ear when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And he used to tell me two things, and, and that was it. Stay on top of the sound. And don't let the mouthpiece slip down. Keep it. Keep a lot of top lip in the mouthpiece. Okay. Uh, when uh, when uh, when Dave came to me, he was he was floundering, and so we got him just to basically uh, I don't know play more efficiently, find the sweet spot in the sound. You see, that's yep. that that is where most people are completely clueless. And they're clueless because of vocabulary that people use. And the vocabulary is not good. Uh, take, for instance, the word centered. Yeah. Wow. That's, well, it's a really nice word. Uh, it denotes certain good things. But I believe that the sweet spot in the sound for all the instruments, not just for the trumpet, is on top of the sound. Uh -huh. The people who have it, in quotation marks, the one half of 1% of the best players in the world. Yeah. They all have that beautiful, ringing, resonant tone that just lights up. It's always perfectly in tune, and it's the most musical thing you ever heard. Who are a couple examples of trumpet players who would fall into that category? <coughs> Excuse me. Witten's old recordings of the Haydn and the Hummel are absolutely fantastic. They had the it sound. I think so. Yeah, okay. I think so. James Galway has it. Yeah. It, it's a big fat sound but how he gets it is through precise precision right on top of the sound and if you hear anything go out of tune ever with Galway it's always just maybe two cents sharp which is great because 
Like Dennis Brain said, I'd rather play a little sharp than play out of tune. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> okay. So you find that people play too low? Always. Absolutely always. There's never a person who comes here to come play for me that just just makes a sound who's oh just does it so it rings and so see it's loaded with paradox if you want to play well it's it's so thick with paradox it's it's a world of opposites for instance if you want to get a big sound you have to aim small as soon as you aim for a big sound it goes away and you've lost it you've gone past the sweet spot the okay so if you want, if you want a big sound, aim small. Yeah. The other thing is, um, the only way you can get control is to let go. I mean, it's opposite all the time. Uh -huh. So, what it really boils down to is to play where the note tapers itself, play Whoa. in the taper zone. So, how do you find the taper zone? Everybody comes in here and plays ah, and I get them to play like a second line G, uh -huh. play a G, and they'll play a G, and I'll say, okay, now float it, let it go, let it go, let it go to where it wants to go without manipulating it. Right. And undoubtedly, by the end of the note, as they're tapering it, the pitch of the G goes up and up and up and up, and then it settles and tapers beautifully by itself. Uh -huh. I say, so, do you feel where that note is when you just let it go and you let it taper, you let it go all the way to the taper zone? Right. Well, start the note there, uh -huh. and it's a very small place. See, the sound should come from the taper and go to the taper. But most people play open-ended notes, and they go, ah! And so it's open on both ends, and it sounds harsh, and it's pressed down. And it loses the beauty of the sound. See, that, that's the most important thing is the beauty of the sound. Mm -hmm. What causes people to do that? Why are they all doing that? They're deaf. <laughs> and they listen to people who tell them these things and then they and then they continue to do things even if they don't work well what are these some of these misconceptions you talk about the most common ones that are being mistaught incorrectly taught okay well the three things is like breathe down low Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that will that's pre a controversial prevent, you, prevent you from doing it. There are a lot of people who strongly disagree with that. Uh -huh. A lot of people who strongly agree with it. So, well, where does this come from? Where does it come from? It comes from how the body works naturally. Right. Okay. So, I tell people, first of all, you should be sitting up straight and pick up your chest before you begin playing. Okay. And, you know, it's a whole bunch of little stuff that makes a big difference. Yeah. So, if you actually pick up your chest... Before you start playing, you see, uh, then the air can just flow in there. So if you take a breath and pick up your chest and breathe in through your nose. Yeah. All the way. So it starts down here, doesn't it? Yeah. But that's not where it ends up. Right, right. Okay. So that's just natural. That's the way it works. But to play the trumpet, a lot of people say we have to breathe a certain way and go... So when I breathe like that, you hear my voice, it's tension, it's, and the only way to get the air out is to push it out. Right, right. And pushing the air out drives the tone down and it ruins the sound. Yeah. And it pounds on your lip. It just beats the hell out of your lip. You once told me in a lesson, I had a lesson with you many years ago, mm -hmm. you once told me that you had a front row seat at the Met and you got to see the world's greatest singers and you saw them breathing from their chest. Always, All always, always. And you can hear it. 
You mm -hmm. hear it. They pick up their chest and they go. Right. They do not go. That's a big difference because when I go, I'm all stuck and I can't do anything. I'm choked off. Whenever I have someone come in and say, well, I'm all closed off the throat, I close off the throat. Yeah, Why? Yeah. Just because you're breathing Because of the low. breathing. Okay, because it gets stuck. On the other hand, if you take a breath with your chest up and you fill up, right, naturally, yeah. make, make a set. Actually, I've been having much success lately with having guys make a little hissy sound in their breath uh -huh. because it does a couple of things. It engages the corners. Yeah. Most people play with a very floppy embouchure because they're making the big sound and using a lot of air. They play with the floppy embouchure. It doesn't work. What do you mean by floppy? Could you? Like soft, mushy, oh, instead of together. Oh, gotcha, mm. gotcha. You know, when, when you hear Doc Schitzer's recordings, you can hear every breath he takes. He's like, oh, every single one. And oh. he's right on top of the sound. Yeah, yeah. Right on top. So he has his voice. You see, when you play on top of the sound, then once you figure out how to play there, uh, the beauty of playing on top of the sound is if you stay in that taper zone where the taper lives, yeah. where the note really is alive and lives, you can brutalize the note. Yeah. And you can brutalize the note and not have it come apart. It turns to flame. It turns to burn. Mm -hmm. And when it turns to burn, that's a green light. That's right, like, right. It, that's, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Because then again, you know, Jimmy up in front smiles. I used to play as loud as I could sometimes. Uh -huh. And it was just right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Because the tone was still beautiful instead of going, ah. What are some of these other misconceptions that are commonly okay. taught? You okay. the breathing. All right. Uh, uh, the, there are three things. Breathe down low. Yeah. Say ah or oh inside your mouth. Oh. As you're breathing ah. in. As you're breathing in? No, as you're setting. As, like when, when you're producing the tone, say ah. Oh, I see. To make a big sound. Yeah, yeah. And um, what's the third thing? Oh, yeah. Use more air. That's the problem solver. Use more air. So we have, a, we have teaching for years and years that says breathe down low, say R or O, and when you run into problems, use more air. Uh -huh. It's all wrong, all of it. You've got to breathe naturally, yep. and you have to say E, E all the time. You have to say E all the time. You know, in the Arvin book, it says the pronunciation, right? It says two, 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 two. Yeah. Well, Dave Gordon in Seattle, the principal trumpet of Seattle, reminded me that it's a French book. The right. Arbin's book is a French book. And indeed, yeah. the pronunciation for two is chi, chi, chi. Now you say that, chi, chi, chi. And what happens is you, it creates a V in your tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. T. And the, the tip of your tongue goes down behind your bottom teeth. Yeah. And your tongue turns into a V and it goes forward. Yeah. Tongue forward. That's what, that's what everyone has to do. That's where high notes come. That's where efficiency, com efficiency comes from. Yeah. So, uh, again, you know, take, breathe down low, say, oh, oh, and use more air. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. You do one of them, you can't play. You do all three of them, they're trifecta, you complete basket case. So, <laughs> which is what most people do. Yeah. What most people do. Yeah. So, uh, 
I've had people tell me, uh, you know, it's about where the note lives, where the sweet spot is. Mm -hmm. And people say, I would have never, ever in a million years thought to look on top of the sound to find the sweet spot. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought in a million years because everyone says centered. And then some people say that the sweet spot is on the bottom of the sound. So you get a ah. But that's not the trumpet. The trumpet should be sounding like a trumpet. It's got to be brilliant. Can you? And you got to come in on the white horse and yeah. take some heads, swinging the sword once in a while. Could you give me an example of just so people could see it on camera of just a setup, a breath and an air attack just right here without a trumpet? You see, when I was at the Met, I would always, especially when I had something that was important for me to play yeah. that I was nervous about, I would always finish my breaths through my nose. It, oh, really? Uh-huh. It, it, it was an insurance policy Joel for me. Joel has a horn here if you want it. Okay, if you want awesome. It. it was an insurance policy for me that uh, I would have the right resistance, the proper setup and the resistance and the support and it gave me time to get my lip in the mouthpiece. Yep. And uh, that's what I would do. So, I, you see, more and more, I'm, I'm trying to get guys to breathe through their face. Instead, like the whole thing. Oh. Breathe through your nose. Breathe through the corners of your mouth. Go. So, so it's like... So you took the last bit through your nose there. Yeah, yeah that's there. In essence, what you're going for is you want the inhale to be roughly the same as the exhale. Well, that brings me to a point. Uh, okay, good. That brings me to a great point because I'll, I'll ask guys if, when they come here, do you, do you have a physical sensation of air leaving your body when you're playing? They're like, yeah. Like, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Do you have a physical sensation of air leaving your body when you're speaking? Right? I just finished the sentence and I was completely out of air. Yeah. Take another breath. But d do I feel it going out as I'm speaking? No. The, the, the only way that the air comes out of your body is through the resonance and the ring of your tone. Right, right. Of your voice. Mm -hmm. So if I were to play, if I were to speak like most people play the trumpet, mm -hmm. it would sound something like <laughs> this because they blow on every goddamn note. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yep, so yep. when I take breath, okay, and that's another thing it, that is that people like to breathe in rhythm also. They love to go one, two, mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow, that is really not good. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it reinforces the suck blow. Because oh, I like to tell my guys once I get to know them and once they start understanding what I'm talking about. Yeah. If you blow, you suck. <laughs> My job when someone comes to see me is to get any semblance of blow out of their playing. Yeah. And replace it with sing and with musicality and artistry is as opposed to note processing where you go one, two, three. So you want to work with the resistance of the instrument. You exactly. If there's no resistance pushing back at you, see, okay. Thank you. 
You're welcome. What the, <laughs> you're, you're egging me on. This is great. See, when you play the way that I want you to play, yeah, I want you to play on top of the sound with pinpoint accuracy. You see, what it boils down to it, it's two things. You play in the taper zone where the note lives, yep. where it is alive. Okay, mm -hmm. that's on top of the sound. Yeah. We can argue about that till the cows come home. Right. But it's on top of the sound for singers. It's on top of the sound for the best fiddle players in the world. It's on top of the sound for best flute players, the clarinet players. Right. Sabina Meyer, she plays on top of the sound. Every note she plays on the clarinet is perfectly, perfectly in tune. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy hearing her play. That's why I enjoy hearing her play, because she makes me smile. Yeah. When I hear other players really doing it, it brings that involuntary reaction from the listener. They break out into a smile. Yeah. And when you hear someone with it who's playing in the orchestra, they get your full attention and you're like, wow. And you can raise the hairs on the back of your neck. Right, That's right. what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. The beautiful musical experience. Okay. Uh -huh. And that's only created if you produce a viable tone, a real tone, a specific thing a tone has resonance it has ring it's perfectly in tune and it takes on a life of its own yeah i like to say it's more like surfing than note processing because once you have the resistance established and the sound established and it's ringing and it's vibrant then it's a matter of can you concentrate well enough to make it from the beginning all the way through your thing and then and then you're done. It's like you play the phrase. It's just you burn the music. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like you flip the switch. Okay, here, here it comes. I'm going to flip the switch now. I'm about to play. Click. You're still burning. Right. Still burning. Still burning. Still burning. Done. Click. <laughs> wow, that was hard. Let's try a segment if we could. I would like to ask you, I've got a list of like seven or eight things here. If you could brief... Uh, basically trumpet techniques and, and ideas. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could give me just a brief um, few words about what you think about them, how students should go about practicing them and so forth. Okay. Uh, we've already covered the first one, basically tone. The second one, articulation. Oh, again, if you put your tone first, mm -hmm. your articulations are going to be better. Right. I've had experiences where uh, Guys come in here and they say, well, I've been working on my tonguing for like a month, six weeks. I'm like, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know you had trouble tonguing, but okay. Well, what have you been tonguing? What have you been practicing? Oh, I've been doing the Goldman book and that, 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 that. Oh, okay, well, well, show me what you've been doing. Let's hear it. And so they start doing it and I'm like, nah, that doesn't sound very good. And... And then I, I try to play it, and I can't play it either, and that doesn't sound very good. And in two minutes, I can't tongue anymore, and I, I yell at the kid, and I say, look what you did to me. Now I can't tongue either. Get out of my house. <laughs> look what you've done. So <laughs> tonguing is a thing. Okay, you've got to be able to tongue a whole bunch of different ways according to what you need to do musically. And it all comes back to tone production, really. And it all comes back to, don't fuck up the tone. Yeah. If you let the tone lead, again, uh, I lose track. If all your energy is, is just all your concentration, just put into the effort of making the most resonant, ringing tone you possibly can, mm -hmm. 
then all all is going to be well in the universe. Everything, right, right. all your physical ducts line up in a row because you're making the resonant ringing sound. You see, right. it's the ring and the sound that makes your chops work great. Yeah. And it's not the chops working great that puts the ring in the sound. Yeah. You know what puts the ring in your sound? Willpower. If yeah. you can hear it, you can do it. Mm -hmm. If you can't hear it, you can't do it. And that's where the different levels of talent come into play. And you mentioned taping yourself as well earlier off camera. Yeah, I, I did it uh, sparingly, but mm -hmm. whenever I did do it, I was like, wow, I suck. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really important. It was really valuable tool for you, the taping. Yes, it was. It was, it was important taking auditions and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Well, I have a few. I have a feeling you're going to answer most of these the same way, so I'll skip those. But I have a few that I think are maybe on a slightly different topic. What about uh, time? If you're having problems with it, you should you should use a metronome. And I'm an anti-subdivision person. Oh, interesting. I go the other way uh, because I think with me the time is inside of me, and it I it just grooves. And it grooves better when something's in a fast four. I'll I'll take I'll, I'll feel it in two. When something's in three, I'll feel it in one. I'll feel the bigger picture rather than the one e and a two e and a one e and a two e and a. Because I can't see the forest for the trees when I go one e and a two e and a. Interesting. I go the other way. What about pitch? Pitch is completely taken care of when you make your beautiful ringing resonant tone. Yeah. It's and. and the beauty of doing that is that when we play this way, there's no manipulation involved, no manipulation of the lips, no manipulation of the pitch. You let it go and you let it sail to where it wants to go. What's the proper way to use a, um, a tuner? Throw it away. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Useless. Wow. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh-huh. I, yeah, I, I never owned one. And... Occasionally, you know, in the pit, somebody would be playing around with it. And if I had, a, I had to uh, tune up my rotary trumpet or something, you know, I'd tell them to take a look, see where I was, uh -huh. if I was in the ballpark. Yeah. But that's about all it's use, useful for. Interesting. Useful okay. for. Uh, I've, I've had people call me up and say, uh, it's two weeks after a lesson. Jim, I'm, I'm doing great. It feels fantastic. I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, my range is great. My endurance is great. But when I... When I go up to a G on top of the staff, well, maybe it's just two cents sharp. What should I do? I said, sounds great, right? Yeah. Feels great, right? Yeah. Throw the fucking tuner out. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it out. Yeah. Next one. You ready? Yeah. Musicianship. If you're making a beautiful tone, you can be a musician. I'll if you don't back. make a beautiful tone, you're a note processor. And you can play at the music as much as you want, but you're not going to be in it. Yeah. It's a connective. You see, when you make a beautiful tone, a viable tone, a real tone, and not a sound, because that's the sound, you know? Tone yeah, yeah, is yeah. specific. Uh, when you make a beautiful tone, it's a transcendental experience. It changes everything. It mm -hmm. turns you from... It's magic. Oh, I wanted to hear the analogy. I was so excited. It, it, <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's magic. It, yeah. It's magic. It turns you from somebody who's trying to operate this thing, tuku 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 tu, right? Mm -hmm. To this being, 
a complete extension of you, part of you. It, it, it is, becomes you. Right, right. It's no longer plumbing. Yeah. This is plumbing. And if you make a beautiful, beautiful tone on it and you find some balance and resistance and make, you know, then it becomes, then you become the instrument. There right, it is. Right, you right, see, right. you're the instrument and not this thing. Yeah. Auditioning. And maybe more along the terms of how it relates to, I don't know, nerves, mm -hmm. or stage fright, that type of thing. Take Inderol. Don't leave home without it. Ah, <laughs> got it. Propanol. Right? Yeah. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. Yeah. yeah. Um, that covers pretty much all those. Um, I want to get back. Audition, uh, auditions? Well, yeah. You, want to... you have to claim the job for yourself in your mind before you even show up. Okay. You have to know you're going to be the best guy. You have to go in there and say, check this shit out. Mm -hmm. And this is how I'm going to play. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But you have to go, well, it depends on your personality. But for me, I knew I was going to win before I went, mm -hmm. in my mind. Yeah, you were that confident. On stage, we interviewed Mike Roylance. Do you know Mike? He was a tuba no. player. He was a tuba player with the Boston Symphony. Mm -hmm. And he, he remembers distinctly, on stage, I think it was in the finals, for the Boston Symphony tuba audition, his dream job. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting there thinking to himself, in between excerpts, he actually caught himself thinking, the uh, financial future of my wife and child depend on how I'm going to play this next excerpt. And then he had to stop himself. Mm -hmm. But he was, th those kind of thoughts creep in. Listen, when I won the job at the Met, I was having, I was, I was principal trumpet in Oklahoma Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. I, it was my fourth year there. The fourth year we went on strike and the orchestra folded. So I was out of work for like 10 months living in Oklahoma. Yeah. Going blind, wearing a telescopic device to read my music. Uh, <laughs> I had a, f uh, a baby about to turn four. Oh, man. Uh, I was under a lot of pressure. Yeah. How did you deal with that? Just confidence. Uh, I don't know. Was it a uh, false confidence you brought to the audition? No, no. I was stressed. <laughs> yeah. I was stressed, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd been to so many. I mean, I'd been runner-up six times. Oh, really? Yeah. Every time the, the screen comes down, they see my telescope and the ball and the and the alarm bells went off. So oh, I never seriously? got I never got hired. Uh, so the Met had a, a a screen through the finals, really? and that's that's why they hired me. Wow. Because they had no idea. Wow, interesting. And uh, and then the personal manager said, "Well, what's up?" And I said, "Well, you know, I got this thing and." Uh, Give me two years, just like everyone else, then decide whether you want to keep me on or not. Yeah. And he was agreeable to that, and yeah, so I had I eked wow. out 15 years. So. Wow. It's, it's a miracle I had any of them. <laughs> I want to get actually. to my favorite question for all these interviews. Okay. How did you get good at the trumpet? Uh. I really worked hard once I got out of college. After college, is when you got yeah, good. Yeah. 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 Where, had, where was your schooling at? I don't even know. Uh, I went to University of Connecticut for two years, and I went to Juilliard for three years. Well, you don't get into, I mean, Connecticut's a good school, and Juilliard's obviously an amazing school. You don't get into those without being pretty good to start with. Uh, I was okay in high school, but, you know, I, I, I had an amazing transformation after my uh, freshman year in college. Mm -hmm. I went down to uh, Eastern Music Festival down in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. It was the summer of 1977. I was 19. I met Wynton Marsalis there. He, Wynton was there. He was oh, 15. Really? Yeah. It's the first time I met Wynton. 
and uh, and uh, the trumpet teacher was some, a guy named John McElroy, who plays first okay. trumpet in Alabama. All right. And he's a terrific player. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I was playing on a, a 5C all through high school. Mm-hmm. And I had no range, no tone, no endurance. I was I was not doing well. Mm-hmm. And uh, and John McElroy had uh, all the trumpet students for the for the camp, about eight of us, I guess, in his in his room. And you know what his audition was? His audition was, okay, everybody got out your horns, just play a high C as loud as you can. You play a high C. <laughs> <laughs> you play a high C. <laughs> you high C. He gets the wit and win and goes. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, wow, this kid's awesome. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the point of this story is that I was having a lesson with Big John, and he was looking at my mouthpiece, and he's looking at it, and he just took it and grabbed it, and he pulled it out of the horn, and he stuck it in his pocket. And he took out a one C and he plugged it in the horn and I started looking at it and he and he berated me, called the called me a pussy and uh, <laughs> told me that I'm going to be playing that mouthpiece for the rest of the summer. Wow! And I said, Oh, really? I just felt like a toilet bowl. Yeah. But uh, so I went from a five C to a one C and within five days, my range went up five or six notes. My wow. endurance got better and my sound went from eh to. So, yeah. So my message is... Yeah, what do you attribute that to? Play the largest mouthpiece that you can can handle. Because I contribute it to the mouthpiece being a 5C being too small and your lip not having enough room to flap around in the mouthpiece, especially when you start pounding on it. You get tired, you swell up, everything cuts off. With a big mouthpiece... You got room for your lip to swell up, and you can just keep playing. Right, right. What, what did you settle on um, in the, at the Met? What was your go-to mouthpiece that you ended uh, up on? I, 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 I used the, the, mouth, the mouthpiece that McElroy put the in. The same one. I used that one for, for all my auditions and for my first five or six years at the Met. Wow. And okay. the only reason I changed it is because... I hit it with a six iron swinging a golf club <laughs> in my apartment well, in New course, York. Of course you did, yeah. <laughs> Stories all this time, yeah. Yeah. Because everybody. <laughs> How in the hell did you hit it with a six iron in your apartment? Oh, uh, my cat turned my leather chair around. It was sitting on a leather chair, and he spun it around with his big, tall tail, uh-huh. and I made a horrific swing. <laughs> and the trumpet turned into a pretzel. It went hit the ground i was like oh no so from that point on i spent about you know five grand on mouthpieces after that and never really did find anything so so uh back to the story what were after college you said is when you had a real transformation what happened then after college uh i just well i was having uh i was having poor me issues Was I playing for me or was I playing for my father? Did I really want to be a trumpet player? Oh, but wow. All this psychobabble bullshit. Well, were you playing well at the time? No. Well, all right. Okay. You know, I didn't know that I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, once I decided that I actually wanted to, for me, that's when it kind of... Wow. It, it kind of took off after that's that. That's stuff. Uh-huh. It was... Uh, yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was within you. It wasn't something that happened. It wasn't a teacher you saw or anything. It was no. just deciding that you wanted to do it for yourself. Yeah, it was com- uh, that I, yeah. Because I went, 
After Juilliard, I went to Mexico City for a year, played uh, associate principal down in the Mexico City Philharmonic. Yeah. And after that, we had to leave because every, everything was in chaos. Yeah. So the year following that, I pretty much didn't play for quite a long time. Just, wow. I was a sales clerk at a thrifty drugstore. No, you weren't. Yeah. Thrifty gym. <laughs> Employee of the month. How long did you take? <laughs> you were now. You were employee of the month yeah, too. I was. So you were actually about, good at it. About about ten months, I worked there. So you did. How long did you take off the trumpet? Almost a year. You didn't touch it. Well, kind of on and off. Just barely but, touched yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then you just kind of had a soul searching and decided that that was. Yeah, I decided that I wasn't happy and. Uh, you're employee of the month, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wasn't happy. Seems and like you had My a wife sat me down one day and said, you're miserable. I can't stand seeing you like this, and you yeah. got to play. Wow. And uh, at that point, principal trumpet for the Rhode Island Philharmonic was open. Yeah. And that's not a job. but So you did it. I went from Southern California, and uh, yeah, I went back to my dad's house and, and, and succumbed to his will wow. <laughs> and i had three weeks to to get in shape and and win the audition for the rhode island philharmonic so you prepared for three weeks for the audition after that having played for about yeah. a year uh-huh <laughs> and i won the audition and i had to beat russell davis uh, uh who's a really good trumpet player he just quit his job in montreal he was playing in montreal for years and years yeah 24 years so i had to actually beat a legitimate player too wow uh, so after that, uh, I moved back to Rhode Island from California, and that's when I found out I was going blind. The doctor said after, he said, six months, you're not going to be able to read anything anymore. Oh, and he was right. Yeah. And uh, I was like, wow, what do I do now? And I said, well, shit, let's just keep going. So I just kept going. So I kept taking auditions, and I was runner-up in Seattle for principal trumpet. Yeah. And uh, I think Charlie Baker got the job back then. Charlie Butler? Butler, right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sorry. So these were all auditions where you were playing great, and then they got to the final round, and you felt like you played well, but the screen was down, and you got axed. Well, yeah, but in it's Seattle, I, I, I screwed the pooch on, on sight reading because I just couldn't, I couldn't read. Oh, really? Yeah. And then the next audition uh, was the Oklahoma Symphony, and uh, that took forever. That took, like, four trips out and playing with the orchestra. And, hmm. and uh, so I finally got the Oklahoma Symphony job, and uh, that was okay. The first year was okay. Second year was, uh, I hadn't found my telescope yet. And, yeah. Uh, well, I got a couple more questions yeah. before we go to the monster round. All right. Uh, the, the, we, we did some homework. We talked to Mark Gould and Pete Bond. Pete uh -huh. wouldn't give us any info on you. <laughs> I'm still mad at you, Pete. I'm hoping you some dirt. But Mark Gould came through for us. I don't know what any of this means, but he gave me two things. He said, first of all, he says he saved your job after a stage performance of Pagliacci. Absolutely true. What happened? Absolutely true. This is great. He did save my job. Uh, uh, I played a Pagliacci on stage one Saturday night, and uh, it was like the last show of the week, and mm -hmm. I figured, well, shit, after I'm done playing the call, I'm off. So I, I like to act a lot when I'm on stage because I, I was on stage. I used to... You used to bite the coin, you know, and call the chorus on stage and take money. You know, I was just doing the shtick, man. I was yeah, yeah. Jim, the actor up there. <laughs> so, as I finish it, 
And I figure, ah, hell, I'm done. So I put the trumpet under my under my arm, and I pull out a little bottle of shivis from my sash, and I go pop, and go 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 go, boop, and put on it back stage. in my sash, put it on stage, put it back in my sash, and I, and I walked off stage, and I'm happy. You know, the phone rings at nine o'clock next Sunday morning. It's like nine fifteen. Mark Gould's on the phone. He goes, Jim, <laughs> yeah. Jim, yeah, what's up? He goes, Jim, were you drinking on stage last night? I was like, uh, wh why? Well, I, I've gotten some phone calls. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah. He goes, Jesus Christ. He goes, if anybody asks, deny it. it was, there was tea in that bottle. <laughs> So it's true. He did save my job. Oh my God, that was yes. hysterical. But, but I saved his life twice, though. Whoa, what? I saved his life Go twice. On. Go on. Well, the first time was when the trumpet section uh, went down to Sammy's Romanian Steakhouse on the east side. And uh, we had dinner and Gould ordered vodka. And so they bring out a bottle of vodka frozen in a block of ice and put it on the table. Uh-huh. Well, we were so wrecked coming out of Sammy's Romanian that Gould stepped right into the street, into an oncoming car. Oh, my God. And, and the blind guy grabbed him by the back of the neck <laughs> and pulled him back, and the car went... <sighs> so that was the first time. The second time was on stage in Aida, the last time he ever played Aida. Uh, we're standing on stage on a box, and our feet with no railing around or anything. Our yeah. feet are about 12 feet off the stage, mm -hmm. 10 to 12 feet up in the air. So that's, a, that's pretty high up there. Yeah. And so the wall's coming down with the soldiers on top of it. And if you're not careful, you can get vertigo. And uh, yeah. And so anyway, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I told Gould, I said, listen, when the wall starts going down, I said, don't look at the wall. You got to look at the crack in the floor where the wall's going down there. And if you just look at the crack of the wall, you're going to be cool. But if you look at the wall, you're going to get weird. You're oh. going to start doing that. Yeah, yeah. All right. But what I didn't tell him is, is that when we bring the trumpets up in unison, when you bring the herald trumpets up, mm -hmm. You see the bells going up against the background of the of the Met and the wall and everything. And Gould started going like like this and he started and, and he started going over and I grabbed him with my left hand and I played the thing with my right hand and he just stood there the whole time just going He didn't play a note? Not a note. <laughs> you played the whole what? thing. <laughs> I just grabbed him. Just grabbed him and held him in place. Cause he almost went he was he started doing this one. Oh my God! Yeah, twelve feet would kill you. Yeah, Holy and all cow. the chorus girls were down below there, so we would have hurt them too. Oh, okay. Uh, those those are the two times that I saved yeah, his he life. Yeah, he didn't mention those. Yeah, I was say, uh, the, he saved my career. Yes, he did. Second one, Brandenburg in a pillow. <laughs> yeah, this is classic. Uh, uh, I got to play the Brandenburg with Jamie at Carnegie Hall, and. Uh, and I, I guess it it was default goes to me 
uh, <laughs> so anyway, we, we're rehearsing it, and uh, Mark played the Brandenburg. He said he wanted he won an audition for the Hartford <coughs> Symphony or something like that, or Springfield Symphony under right. Brandenburg. He but, wanted nothing to do with it. it. He was oh, like, okay. "It's yours, man." Okay. Uh, so we're at the dress rehearsal, and uh, and while while recital hall at Carnegie, mm -hmm. and. Jimmy has the band over on the right-hand side of the stage, and he's in the middle, and I'm like over on the left-hand side of the stage, completely alone. Mm -hmm. And I played it from memory because I couldn't see it anyway, and <laughs> I was tired of pretending, and I didn't want to stand in front of me, so yeah. So I played it from memory, didn't use any music. So uh, we're rehearsing it, and uh, Jimmy's conducting, and instead of pointing straight out into the hall. I kind of did a little, you know, towards the middle. Mm -hmm. and, and Jimmy stops and he goes, Adolf, uh, Adolf, be, be careful there. You, you, you're zigging me a bit. And I looked at him and I don't know why. I looked at him and I said, well, what are you going to do for the people in the first three rows? Have them sign a disclaimer before they come in? <laughs> and the whole freaking band just <laughs> fell out of the floor laughing. And Jimmy's sitting there going, because it's not funny unless he says it, right? Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, okay, well, we went on with the rehearsal, and uh, then he asked me, uh, do you want to do anything tomorrow before the show? And I was like, no, let's come, just come in and do it. Okay, fine. So the performance day comes up. It's in the morning. Uh, Ken Hunt calls. Ken is is... is is this guy who takes care of everything. Yeah. And uh, he says, uh, Jimmy needs to see you before, before the performance. I said, well, why? I said, he told me we're not doing anything. Uh, no, he needs to see you. I was like, oh, man. So I, was, I had to get dressed, take a shower, get dressed, go down there, go see him. He, he, he just finished rehearsing another one of the Brandenburgs. And he goes, oh, Dolph, oh, I'm, I'm glad you came in. You know, you know, I I was thinking about I was thinking about what you said the other day, and well, well, I I was wondering if if you would mind like playing into this. And he had a stand with a velvet pillow <laughs> taped to it. Gotta be kidding me! And I and I looked at him and I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I said, listen, it's gonna. And then I went and went into the trumpet thing, and I said, listen, it's gonna it's gonna mess up. The resistance is going to mess up my balance. And besides, I'm playing it from memory because I don't want anything in front of me. Uh -huh. And he goes, oh, well, okay. And so, you know, the performance went off and uh, I, I did really well. And he came up to me afterwards. He said, Dolph, you hot shit. And he gave me a big <laughs> hug. And, and that was it. So, so you told Jimmy Levine what was up. You said, I'm going to do it this way. That's pretty much true. Yeah. So <laughs> Peter Bond... Bless Peter, he, he gets this pillow with a hole in it, and he has the, the first page, the first page of the score to the Brandenburg too, all burned off and cinched on the corners and everything. And there's a big hole in the thing, and he and he goes up to Jimmy. And he goes, "Hey, this, Jimmy, this is for Dolph. Would you sign it?" So Jimmy signed <laughs> signed the pillow you for still me. Have it? I do. <laughs> oh, but anyway, yeah, it, it is true. All right. Well, those are all my questions. I got one more segment we like to do for everybody. And it's mm -hmm. called the Monster Round. It's like a lightning round, so mm -hmm. we just ask you rapid fire questions, okay? And you answer as quickly as you can, yep, and concisely that whole thing. So, this is the Monster Round. With Jim Pandolfi. What's the first thing you would do as president? 
increased minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour. What do you miss most about the Met job? Camaraderie. What do you miss the least? Uh, what do I miss the least? Yeah. What was the biggest drag about the job? <clears throat> there were none. Wow. Okay. If you could put up a billboard in New York City, what would it say? All hail Emperor Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all hail, all hail. <laughs> Given the choice, would you rather build your own house or score a touchdown in the Super Bowl? Build my own house. What's your favorite all-time book? Golf in the Kingdom. What's the most common mistake you heard at Met auditions? Breathing bad. Name three trumpet players you always wanted to sound like. Andre. Maynard Ferguson. Bill Chase. Nice. Favorite cartoon character? <laughs> Foghorn Leghorn. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Favorite jazz trumpet player? Uh, Clifford. What's the most difficult trumpet technique to teach? Making a tone. <laughs> it's hard. Best brass quintet of all time. Well, oh, the old Canadian brass was awesome. With Ronnie, Ronnie Brown and those guys. What's your favorite opera? To play it would be probably Otello. Uh-huh. That was P-Bonds. And to listen to, well. Uh, to listen to, well, you like Manon Lascaux. Puccini. Uh, last question. If you could have a beer with anybody in history, who would it be? Maurice Murphy. Really? Huh. I'd love to go hang with Maurice. Jim Pandolfi, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. <laughs>